Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In business, we frequently hear those usually meaningless words, this time it's different. Usually that means it isn't, that it's just a new look at the same old problems. In the current political landscape, we sometimes hear the same thing, but different from what? It's certainly different from political norms. But is it all that different from the early 1930s as we watched the rise of Hitler and Mussolini in Europe and the populism and racism of Huey Long here at home? Originally published in 1935, Sinclair Lewis's It Can Happen Here is a satirical and dystopian look at the potential rise of fascism in America, and it has a new and profound relevance today. In fact, sales of this prescient and 82-year-old book have skyrocketed as it provides a kind of mirror into the world today. And today we're joined by Dr. Sally Perry. She's the executive director of the Sinclair Lewis Society, and it is my pleasure to welcome her here to the program to talk about Lewis and about It Can't Happen Here. Sally, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Well, it's great to have you here. Could you have possibly imagined in this work that that you do with the Sinclair Lewis Foundation that this book would become a bestseller 82 years after it was published? Well, I must admit I'm a little surprised and, uh, you know, also I'm a little disturbed that there there are so many connections that people are making between the book of 1935 and the current political situation. So I, I guess kind of like the characters in the book, I hope it can't happen here, but, you know, the book is also a warning to, um, you know, citizens to not not let it. I guess the, the the fundamental question, which perhaps you and few others that really understand the work of Sinclair Lewis can answer, is how he might have looked at what we're seeing today. Well, you know, I, I think that Lewis, um, you know, despite in some ways being an author of his time, I think he had a real bead on the American character. And that's that's important to remember. One, once upon a time, he said, I love America, but I don't like it. And I thought I thought that was that was profound in the sense that, you know, he very he very much um, thought that the values on which our country is, is based, you know, that that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights and so forth, were really important and really wonderful. But the behavior of the American people didn't live up to didn't didn't live up to those ideals. Um, all the time, or sometimes hardly ever, um, so that you know, and people would act out of fear or greed or um, other kind, other kinds of needs, and so, in a in a in a sense, it can't happen here. Become in some ways is a dystopian fantasy, but in other other ways is kind of a warning that um, you shouldn't be blindsided by the things that happen in, in politics because democracy is perhaps more fragile than you realize. More fragile, and perhaps Churchill got it right when he talked about democracy being sort of a very difficult and not a great form of government, but better than all the others. Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 kind of messy because, you know, on, on the one hand, I, I know that Mr. Trump is kind of gone crazy with executive orders of late and uh, but you know then there's all there's all the bureaucracy behind it which can be good or can be bad it can it can slow down things that are a bad idea which i think is is good um but it can also slow down things that are a good idea um it's 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 a very messy process because people don't agree people act on um 
act for reasons other than the public good. And I think that's where uh, citizens come in is to try and hold their representatives accountable for what they're doing and so that they're not voting just because it's what their party says or because some uh, you know, special interest group has paid them off, but because they, that they should be acting for the greater good. Which really brings to the fore, I suppose, one of the greatest differences between the period of time that Lewis was writing about and what he saw in America in the, in the early 1930s and today, which is the mm-hmm. lack of commonality, the lack of common vision, the way individuals and attitudes can be so siloed today in ways that were not quite as possible back in 1935. Well, you know, I think that's true, especially with with the sort of explosion of different forms of media and, and that sort of thing. I think that that's 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 a major contributor. Now, back in in, in the mid 1930s, there was uh, radio was was the major medium, although there was movies and tele uh, in movies and uh, newspapers and so forth. Um, but you know, there were there were silos in a sense because often people didn't move beyond their own locality, so. You know, you you would read about you know what what was going on locally, and then you'd read the national news, and there was there was often there was often a disconnect. I mean, one of the things that Lewis makes clear throughout the novel is how the Buzz Windrup character, which a lot of people have seen as having a correlation with Donald Trump, is that he appeals to people who feel disenfranchised for some reason because they're unemployed, because they think that. Um, other people are being are are getting jobs or whatever um, in preference to them, and so when they see sort of a, an autocratic figure that says, "I know best, just trust me," they they swarm to him. They're, you know, it's it's not thinking so much as is following a kind of um, populist rhetoric that 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 sounds really good, even if even if you haven't a clue or haven't thought very deeply about how all of this is going to be accomplished. And what Lewis seemed to really understand is what it is that feeds that kind of populism. I mean, this is not something that can Mm -hmm. come along anytime. There have been very clear historical periods. We're in one now, and and certainly the period of time that that Lewis writes about, and it can happen here, are periods that were just ripe for this kind of populism. Well, it's true. You know, you figure in the the mid-1930s, we're in the middle of the Depression, so we have very high unemployment rates. we're less less than 20 years from the end of World War One, so a lot of people are sick of foreign entanglements of various sorts. So there, there's a there's a real sense of isolationism, and you know, concomitant with that, um, isolationism and, and xenophobia all, all often go hand in hand. That you know, the foreign other, whether regardless of whether they're on our shores or doing weird things elsewhere, is something that, that um, you want to avoid. So, you, you know, you have the rise of Hitler, you have the rise of Mussolini, you have the rise of militarism in Japan. And so people are kind of are pulling back to their own their own country. So when you see the rise of America first or something like that, it, you know, in some ways, it makes a lot. It, it makes a lot of sense because people feel feel bruised. They feel frightened. They're and they're, they're they look for something that can lift them out of out of this really major funk. <laughs> and you know, in the in the in the novel, Windrip seems to do it. And for the people who have felt in a funk recently, you know, Trump seems to be speaking to that that using that same kind of rhetoric um, to try and to to appeal to them. Talk a little bit about Lewis and how he came to It Can't Happen Here. Oh, sure. Um, 
Lewis was of was was probably one of the best known authors of the 1920s. He had five really uh, big selling books: Main Street, Babbitt, uh, Elmer Gantry, Aerosmith, and Dodsworth. And then in 1931, the Pulitzer uh, won the Nobel Prize for Literature, the first American ever to do so. Um, when he first in the 1930s, in the early 1930s, after he won the Nobel Prize. Um, he became kind of an isolationist, too. I mean, he was actually a part of the America First movement, along with uh, well-known people like Charles Lindbergh, for example. And he was also married to Dorothy Thompson, who was a major foreign correspondent um, and probably the best-known female uh, American correspondent uh, of the 1930s. She had been thrown out of Germany by Hitler. She had done an interview with him, didn't think much of him, and got thrown out. Um, when he married Dorothy Thompson, he um, became privy to a lot more conversations about the political situation, both in the United States and abroad. And I think that his writing of the book it was kind of an, ed an education for him as well as what he wanted for his readers that, you know, as he learned more, he realized that you just couldn't sort of stay in your own little hole and hope everything would go away eventually, that you, ha that you had to become involved. Um, and his protagonist, Doremus Jessup, who's a, a newspaper editor, learns this, but he learns it um, too late. Talk a little bit about his work, and, and it comes back to this view he had. You touched on this before, his view of America, and in a way, his mm -hmm. refusal to accept the Pulitzer Prize, which he won for Aerosmith back in 1925. Yeah. Um, you know, Lewis remained a critic of American society, and so although there was much good about it, there was much that was not, that he thought could be better, I guess would be the best way to put it. And so when he was um, awarded the, the uh, Pulitzer Prize for Aerosmith, you know, it was supposed to be for all that was good and wholesome about American life. The, the description of what the Pulitzer was for has changed over time, but at the, that, at the time that was it. And he was in some ways insulted. He thought, I don't want to show the, you know, the, the the wholesomeness of American life. American life is messy. It's, you know, there are a lot of problems. There's a lot of corruption. And although he did it with a sense of humor and he used sarcasm and so forth, one of the things that he wanted to do was sort of expose American society, whether you're talking about business or um, medicine or religion or politics or race, um, he want he wanted readers to be uncomfortable with what he saw as the the sort of complex reality of American society. It's so interesting that in, it can't happen here. One of the things that he talks a lot about this idea of restoring the country to prosperity and greatness, and it's very haunting mm -hmm. to read that today. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> And in, a, in 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 the in the novel, the Buzz Windrup character has a a campaign biography called Zero Hour Over the Top, um, which is written by his. Um, I was going to call him a henchman. It's written written by his his advisor, press secretary, whatever you want to call him. And there are some correlations between um, Lee Saracen, the, the sort of person behind the throne, and Steve Bannon. Um, you know, it's, I, I would. It might be too far to be calling it an evil genius, but kind kind of working the strings so that the uh, the, the politician becomes kind of the 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 outward voice, the, the the sort that appeals to people, and then there's the the sort of machinations behind the scenes, which may be for a um, a less good purpose than the than the politician realizes.
I mean, I suppose one of the other things that's different is the complexity mm-hmm. of the world today versus the world that Lewis writes about. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I, I think that's true. Um, one of the things that, that I, I guess is most striking is that in uh, you know our 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 world is so much more interrelated you know the the economy is global and there's there's no going back whether you're thinking about it in terms of you know internet sales or where products come from or anything like that um you know we're we're all interrelated and it's you know it's it's interesting to hear Trump talk about the the sort of isolationism and America first and all that sort of thing, especially given that his companies and his hotels and whatnot span the world, and that's where he gets a lot of his his income from. So, you know, on the one hand, we talk about separating out, but on the other hand, the world the world is different, and you know any any hope of going back to some kind of golden age where you know, basically, Protestant white boys have everything. You know, it, short term, maybe maybe that can happen. Long term, I think that that's it, that's just a pipe dream because the world is different. Also, and also, we move more differently than we did before. I mean, nowadays, you can you can fly to a lot of places. There, there's movement all over the globe, and so you can't just um, shut yourself away from the rest of the world and make it easy. Also, one of the other things that, that Windrip does is he surrounds himself with these corporatist kind of characters. It looks like the Trump cabinet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does indeed. <laughs> well, you know, you, 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 see in, you see in the um, nominees for the cabinet a lot of corporate people, a lot of Wall Street people, and a lot of, a lot of rich people like uh, Betsy DeVos, who's um, he nominated for uh, Secretary of Education, even though I'm not sure she's ever been inside a public school. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there is a, there's a disconnect, you know, on the one hand, presenting yourself as a, as a, as a populist. So Windrip does it in one way with his rhetoric. Um, Trump does it in another way, saying, oh, even though I'm rich and, and that's really wonderful, on the other hand, I talk like somebody in a bar. And so, therefore, I'm, I'm really one of you guys, and that's why you should vote for me. So, you know, even though in the, his campaign he was, a, he was very critical of um, Hillary Clinton's connection with Wall Street, making uh, speeches to various Wall Street institutions and everything – I find it really telling that the moment he starts nominating people, most of them are coming from from Wall Street and from um, his 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 big donors. One of the things Windrup understands that Lewis understood, and, and and certainly we're seeing it play out now, is why people buy into this. What is it about this kind of rhetoric and this kind of behavior? and these kind of contradictions that you were just talking about that the public is so willing to buy into? Well, to quote P.T. Barnum, there's a sucker born every minute. Uh, (laughs) I I think, you know, I I think part of it is that we have we have the uh, on the one hand the sort of uh, trajectory through, through American history where, you know, hard work and that sort of thing will kind of like in a Horatio Alger tale will will lead to a good job and success in life and everything. But then there are all those people that hope that there's a shortcut somewhere. And whether the shortcut comes through the lottery or some other kind of special dispensation or by a politician who says, you know, 
you guys deserve this. Um, you know, Herbert Hoover promised a chicken in every pot. Huey Long promised that every man would be a king. Um, and people say, you know, that sounds nice. So I can just kind of, I can, I can make this, I can make this shortcut and get those good things that I deserve. And I think part of the rhetoric plays into, especially for the the, the sort of um, central audience that Trump was playing to, those people who feel that that the world has changed in a way that that's sort of injurious to them. Um, you know, I, I think they say, okay, well, this will this will help me catch up. This will this will restore my job. This will restore my community, or whatever. There's there's no real sense of how any of this would happen, but it sounds really good. And you know, they, they always say when you're whether when you're buying something, whether it's stocks or a product or something, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And but people but people don't want to hear that. They they want to they want to hear that you know you take a pill and you lose forty pounds or you know you elect somebody as president and you get your job back. Um, it's 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 a, it's a fantasy that's just very very common in American society. How was the book received when it originally came out and when the play was produced in 1936? Well, it was. It was it was um, received with a lot of controversy, like like many of Lewis's novels. Um, many people say saw it as yes, it's a warning because um, you know Huey Long was such a presence presence and um, on, on national politics, and there were other sort of proto fascist groups. And while the book was in production, Huey Long was actually assassinated. So there there was a lot of a lot of unrest in the country. So a lot of people said yes, this is a wake up call. And then there were others who. Interestingly enough, sort of echoed the the saying of the book. Well, you know that's nice, but it, it can't happen here. We're American, so that's it, you know it's it's too it's too modeled on um, European notions of fascism rather than American fascism. Um, the play, which came which came out the following year and which was written by um, Lewis and uh, a, a playwright named J. C. Moffat, was really cool because it was produced by the Federal Theater Project and. It opened in 21 productions in 18 cities across the United States, all on the same day. So there's a whole sense of the, the the production of the play kind of replicating fascism spreading. And what was interesting too is that the play took into account where it was being performed. So there was a production in Spanish, there was a production in Yiddish, there was a production in Seattle where the um, the fascists were white and the average citizens were black, which I was told is a, a, a very strong production. Um, and then, and then it was done around the country be, beyond that. So it ran on Broadway for well over a hundred performances then was done by the WPA all over the place. What's really interesting too, is that this past year, the Berkeley rep, um, authorized a new production of it and although they you know there was there was there's much to be said for this play they wanted they wanted to um, make it a little bit more up to date so it's 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 the same plot obviously but they changed it around a little and they tried to replicate the sense of um political unrest throughout the country by having by setting aside a day in October where there were readings of the play whether done at, at universities or community theaters or libraries or whatever to kind of replicate what happened at the time so there was a feeling that it's and I think it helps people to realize that there are others who are feeling the way that you are and are being sort of awakened to the same kind of political problems rather than just sort of 
sitting in your own home stewing because nobody else understands and everything's really awful. So I, I think in that sense, it, it speaks to a sort of a larger population. One of the things that I, I had no idea of until preparing for this conversation with you was that there was a plan to make a movie version of this, which uh, MGM oh, was yes. going to do that Louis, May, Louis B. Mayer <laughs> kills. Talk about that. Oh, I, I, w- I would love to. And, you know, it shows, I think, the um, the way that Lewis was actually able to burrow into the um, the powers that be, I guess. Um, MGM did buy, the, did buy the rights to it, and Lionel Barrymore was cast as Doremus Jessup. Um, there is a script for it, which I would love to get my hands on sometime. And there had and there had been a couple of other movies, primarily B movies in the thirties, that hinted at fascist activity in the United States. Um but there was a lot of pressure put on Mayer and MGM by the other studio heads and by the investors in, in the company. So the the big businesses, the banks the banks back east, um, saying that this would be bad because it would show that American government is unstable. And because it was so well known, there was there was there was some fear among businesses that it would cause a downturn in the stock market. It would make people be more sort of super critical of what was going on in politics. And so yeah, they 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 shut it down. Lewis was was very bitter about it, and in, you know he said that this is actually proof that. My, you know, my novel is cutting closer to the truth than a lot of people wanted to give it credit for. One of the other things about the novel, we've talked about the dystopian side of it, is that it is satirical mm-hmm. also, that it has a certain oh, yeah. biting humor to it. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that, that's quite true. Uh, one, one of the things that Lewis was really good at was um, picking up the voice of various people. So he could do dialects, um, he could... <coughs> He, he could mimic other people's voices, so uh, he does. He does a lot of kind of playing around with that, and also um, kind of putting the sort of incongruous things together. So, for example, at one point, somebody says to uh, Windrip, "Well, what sorts of things do you read?" and which, which I suppose is a really good thing to ask right now. And so Windrip starts by saying, "Well, you know." This, you know, he names a, a sort of classic novel, then he names the Bible, and then he says, and poems by Robert Service. I don't know how many people remember Robert Service these days, but he wrote kind of blood and thunder sorts of poems that, you know, the kinds that people recited in bars. And so, you know, in something like that, he's saying one thing, but he, but his words are really undercutting what he's saying. And so, so it's 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 funny and scary. It's kind of funny and scary at the same time because he'll come across and he'll just say all these great things, but what he's saying um, indicates the depth of his ignorance at, at, at the same time. Is it ignorance or is it misdirection? Is it intentional or is it incompetent? I think I think that Lewis was trying to show the 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 the, the real ignorance of 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 the of the uh, of the character that um, he was using big words and things he'd heard about before. He didn't know the mean that he didn't know the meaning of them, but he was just kind of throwing them out because they sounded good or because people responded to them. 
and you know there are correlations today that people are responding to um, you know build the wall you know how one does this how one goes across you know carries this out how one pays for it what this really means like even economically or geographically well there's no there's 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 nothing there's nothing underneath and so I I think there's a there's 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 this horrible disconnect between something that sounds good and people say oh yay let's do that and then but how do we really do that? that? That part isn't thought about because it doesn't really make any difference. And finally, Sally, talk a little bit about the Sinclair Lewis Society, what it does and uh, sure. what its purpose mm-hmm. is. Sure. Uh, the Sinclair Lewis Society has been around since the early 1990s. And we um, we have a website. We have a newsletter that comes out twice a year. We sponsor conferences every five or six years um, to celebrate Lewis. Um, and it, it comes it comes out of the uh, the centennial celebration in in uh, 1985 that in his hometown of Sauk Center, Minnesota. And over time, we have. Um, We've put together their members are scholars, but they're also Lewis fans. They're book collectors. We even have a couple of uh, Lewis family members as part of it. And one of the things that we're trying to do is um, sort of keep alive and encourage people to read Lewis because um, what he writes about still has so much to say to Americans today about about the way society works, about the way that uh, people interact with each other. Um, so something like Babbitt, which you know was published in 1922, um, still has a lot to say about not only about business but about male midlife crisis and consumer capital, consumer culture, and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of people read it with a spark of recognition. What, what's what's interesting, and I think kind of challenging when you're when you're teaching it, and our our website also has a. Uh, a segment on how on how to teach some of the novels, some good ideas that people have come up with, um, is that some of his novels speak more to people who are you know middle aged or a little older in the sense that they've been around and so they realize what kind of sacrifices or what kind of choices that they've made in their life that maybe have not turned out for the best. So there's also kind of a rueful aspect to a lot of his novels that you know you have to you think back and you say. I should have done this differently. Dr. Sally Perry, she's the executive director of the Sinclair Lewis Society. Sally, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.